Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to the Forum. Today we give platform to the censored critics of global warming in the voice of Dr. Timothy Ball. He will challenge what you thought you knew about environment and climate mechanism plus exposed incredible politicization and corruption of science as what can only be defined as conspiracy in a classical meaning. His claims are backed up by facts referenced in his papers and books, if you're too lazy to verify them elsewhere yourself. First, let's hear Dr. Ball's credentials. A Canadian citizen, UK born in 1938, whose academic fields are geography and climatology. Between 1960 and 62, he was aircrew, navigation and electronics for Canadian Air Force. 62 to 64, he was an operations officer at Prince Edward Island. And 64 to 68, aircrew and operations officer for search and rescue in the Arctic and Western Canada. Since early 70s, he was acting dean of students as well as instructor and lecturer at the Department of Geography at the University of Winnipeg. He got his Bachelor with Honours in Geography from Winnipeg University in 1970, his Master's at Manitoba University in 71, and became Doctor of Science in 82 from Queen Mary College at the University of London with his PhD in Climatology. In 82, he became assistant professor at the Winnipeg University, was promoted to associate professor in 84, and full professor in 88. Dr. Ball has published many peer-reviewed papers on historical climatology. Since his retirement in 96, he's been an active environmentalist, public speaker, consultant, author, and columnist. From 2002 to 07, he wrote 39 opinion pieces and 32 letters to editors in 24 different newspapers. Between 02 and 12, he gave over 600 public talks on global warming and various environmental issues. He has spoken twice at the Heartland Institute's International Conference on Climate Change. Friends of Science maintains a climate digest of articles written by Dr. Ball in 2008 and 9. He's been on numerous TV, radio and podcast shows like National Geographic's Coast to Coast AM, Glenn Beck Show and Michael Corrin Show. He appeared in the British TV documentary The Great global warming swindle on Channel 4 and was one of the academic climate skeptics featured in Exposed the Climate of Fear. The infamous climate gate culprit Michael Mann has called Dr. Ball the perhaps most prominent climate change skeptic in Canada and indeed he has received many honors and distinctions like the gold medal honors in geography from Winnipeg University, the Humboldt Award the Clarence Atchison Award for Excellence in Community Service, and the Clifford J. Robson Memorial Award for Teaching Excellence 
He became graduate fellowship at Manitoba University, research fellow at the George Morris Center, Paul Harris fellow at Rotary Canada, and research fellow at the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Outside academia, he's been founder and director of Rupert's Land Research Center, member of Manitoba Water Commission, president of Manitoba Social Science Teachers Association, editor of Manitoba Social Science Teachers Journal, chairman of Canadian Committee on Climatic Fluctuation and MAN, member of Social Science Curriculum Advisory Committee at the Department of Education, board member of the Forks Development Heritage Advisory Board, board member of Urban Ideas Centre, board member of Western Canada Pictorial Index, chair of City of Winnipeg's Advisory Committee on Hazardous Waste, technical advisor to the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, chair at Assiniboine River Management Advisory Board, and board member of British Columbia Agriculture in the Classroom. Already in 83, Dr. Ball wrote a thesis on climate change. He says it's real, but that human CO2 production isn't a cause. He's also written about ocean acidification from a similarly skeptical viewpoint. In an 06 lecture to the Comox Valley Probos Club, he pointed out that despite CO2 as a cause is just an unproven hypothesis, it's treated as facts because it fits a political agenda. He's among those who reveal that climatic data center misleads the public by announcing premature results based on incomplete data and then quietly updating the data when they gain access to all of it. In 07, Ball was one of seven co-authors of a paper showing that temperatures around Hudson Bay for the past 70 years show no significant warming trend. Hence, it's premature to conclude it's causing polar bear disappearance. He's worked with Friends of Science, a natural resources stewardship project, which opposed alleged consensus opinion of anthropogenic global warming. Not only is CO2 not a greenhouse gas that raises global temperature, he also rejects the existence of the CO2 greenhouse effect itself. He's one of several authors of Slaying the Sky Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory, published in 2011, and he's also one of the signatures of the Manhattan Declaration on Climate Change. No outspoken critics of a monolith in our times goes unpunished. Apart from five death threats, Timothy has been smeared as promoter of the oil and gas industry's agenda rather than as a practicing scientist. He's not on anybody's payroll, unlike so many global warming advocates who ironically accuse him of it. Even worse are two efforts in 2011 to silence him with bogus court cases. First, by Andrew Weaver over an article Dr. Ball wrote for the Canada Free Press, describing Weaver as lacking basic understanding of climate science and questioning his credibility. In 2018, Weaver's defamation suit was dismissed completely. Also Tim, who's a satirist, said in an interview that Michael Mann, 
director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, should be in the state pen, not Penn State, due to his role in the ClimateGate scandal. Tim's banter was sued by man for libel, seeking punitive damages, and for the article to be removed. But the case is still open. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Tim. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Al. Yes, I've been really looking forward to this because I have been for the longest time aware of this incredible scandal that we're going to debate today. And uh, I mentioned uh, this geologist in my family. Is that Tom Segelstad? Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it didn't help when he started to tell me <laughs> about this either, right? Oh, by the way, uh, what I'm thinking, how we can do it, because I, I do not want to preach to the choir. The audience targeted here are those who don't know very much about this, yep. but are open to find yep. out. And I think it's very good after the condition with all these facts that we can st uh, also hear, hear about the insane court case you've been involved okay. in. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Because at that point, they know what we're dealing with. And then they'll really get riled up when they hear what people like you have to suffer just to try to enlighten. Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Tom. And uh, well, I thank you for that. Al, can I include, by the way, in that most scientists don't know very much about it? Yeah. This is a very important point. They just assume that the scientists that are with the UN and, and the whole thing wouldn't corrupt science. That's the problem. Right. But I, I would add to this, as people start to realize what's been going on, the automatic next question and why I wrote the most recent book that I wrote mm -hmm. is the question becomes, what's the motive? Yeah, uh, I actually have that. So, so that would be one thing. What yeah, right. possibly could I uh, want from this? And so, yeah, we get to talk about it. But I should also warn you, sometimes I do traditional interviews, meaning I'm asking a question and then I, uh, like a one-liner and then I shut up while you give a lecture <laughs> in reply. But sometimes yeah. I actually engage, uh, meaning I can share reasonings, yeah. um, substantiate something you say, disagree if I do, yeah. but it's all very cordially and professionally. And my listener are used to me talking um, right. uh, like a conversation, right? So, Okay. Al, the, you know, the lovely phrase I like with that was at a conference I was at where the chairman finally got up and said, said gentlemen, we can disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. Very well put. In fact, uh, on this area, I'm so libertarian that I don't only think it's okay to disagree. I think it's good to disagree. Oh, yes. You know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But, well, in today's, is, yeah. but in today's world, people are not, uh, you know, they're not looking for truth. They just want to hit uh, someone else with their own opinion. Yeah. That kind of disagreement, I don't care about. Well, of course, that, we can talk about that with the lawsuits because this is a, an attempt to silence debate. Exactly. And uh, no, I know I agree with you 100% on all of this. And um, yeah, challenge me all you want because uh, I learned a long time ago, if you're going to stand up in the coconut shy, they're going to throw at you. <laughs> exactly. But I have to tell you, Tim, I traditionally, I come from an environmentalism kind of uh, uh, background. I'm very fond of nature. And I was like most others and probably the majority listening in today, 
uh, very naive about this. I, in my view, it was very simple. Uh, there is climate change. And I still believe there is, by the way. Yeah. But I, I bought into the anthropogenic man-made causation. And the CO2 thing made sense. And so I went along with that. I felt bad when I drove my car between Oslo and Bergen. That's like seven hours in the mountain, you know, yeah. <laughs> just spewing out exos. I, I even got myself an electricity car. And now I feel bad because I wish I could contribute more CO2. But we will get back to that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to ask you questions today that will be kind of from that uh, point of view, like a newbie questions. Okay. And I think that's easier for the listeners to relate to. Yeah. But they've heard your introduction already, and so they know your credentials. Right. But I'd still, despite that, like uh, you to tell us how you got involved in, in this and how you're, um, maybe you knew all the time, or if you didn't, if you started realize the let's hear that journey before we go into the matter okay i'll totally agree with you i mean i'm an environmentalist and, and it annoys me in fact i deliberately put it after my name now when i'm doing radio or tv because people get up there on the tv and you see an environmentalist under them you say well who, who gave you the right to that title where did you get that title mm. and what uh, i'm working on a book right now that's titled environmentalists are killing environmentalism uh-uh. And uh, nice that's a very, very important idea because the way that society changes is through what we call or the academic world calls paradigm shifts. That is that suddenly somebody comes along and says, look, there's a whole new different way of looking at this. And um, in society, of course, the way they react to it is very, actually very predictable. And there's a there's a pattern to it. And what happens is that so somebody came along and I somebody I know really started uh, in the 1960s, the whole environmental movement. There was a conference in Chicago and a, and a book that came out of it by a professor Thomas, which and it had a huge influence on me. And it was called Man's Role in Changing the Face of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And with the reason that triggered for me was because when I was looking at soil formation, for example, they just simply listed, oh, or organic, uh, didn't include humans in that, it included tree roots and worms and so on, but not humans. And, mm. and I, I got interested in that. And, and I ended up doing an honors thesis on the philosophical question about man's role in changing the face of the earth and why it hasn't been considered up to now. In, in what discipline did you do this thesis? Well, I did, I did it in geography because mm. um, and the reason for that is that um, uh, the world has become so specialized Hmm. that there's no uh, overall uh, generalized disciplines anymore except possibly geography because geography Hmm. is trying to integrate things into understanding like on a map what's the larger picture is and and this this idea of uh, and by the way just so your listeners understand when they hear the term climate scientist That is a person who has specialized in something like physics or biology or even even narrower than that. And then they've got interested in the climate change issue. And suddenly they become a climate scientist when they really know nothing about (laughs) the general discipline of climatology. Right. 
Right. Okay, and right. and that's that's a lot of the difficulty. The analogy that I use, by the way, that uh, well, for, first of all, the, the the for applying to climate, what we've got is a people running around with individual pieces of the puzzle, but we've lost the box top. Exactly. Right. We haven't even, in fact, we haven't even found the four corner pieces properly of the of the puzzle, and yet they're saying, "Oh, the puzzle's finished. We know what's going on, and and it's nonsense." So this is all part of. Uh, what's created this now back to the paradigm now, hang on I, hang on i just want yeah, to say about yeah, that and we're going to yeah. go deeper into it later today because sure. uh, most people today have such a incredibly naive uh, uh, imagination about science they think it's like in in advertisement and stuff they don't see the weaknesses and i'm certainly not aware of the huge uh, i should say profit or economic incentive to corruption of uh, of science and oligarchs, corporations. And I heard, by the way, you said uh, it started back in the 60s. I heard that at least the global warming myth, I heard that was even that was launched by an oligarch, namely uh, Morris Strong, I think. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to Morris Strong because... Yeah, he took the uh, a much larger political idea yeah. out of the Club of Rome, which we'll talk about, and put it into uh, – he, he's one of these people that are able to take ideas and put them into action. Because if you think about it, every day there's thousands of ideas that come up around the world, but how many of them actually get implemented? I mean, you go and look at the patent books and all the registrations for patents and how many of them actually end up as a product. And that's another whole part of this process okay. is that you can have ideas – but putting them into practice is another thing. And one of the things that we hear, uh, you hear all the time in English is that no one person can change the world. Well, th- that's simply not true. The problem is that almost everybody that's changed the world has done it for the bad. Worse, for the worse. The yeah. Stalins, the Hitlers, yes. the Maos, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, whether you're religious or not, you could argue, as some people do, that the only person that tried to change the world for the good was Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, he wasn't the only one, not even in religion. But yeah, I agree. No, but, was... but, but generally that idea, yeah, mm. yeah, there's Baghdad and all the rest of it. But but anyway, that, that idea of Murray Strong. But anyway, back to the paradigm shift. Yeah, and back to your paradigm yeah. shift. How did uh, you... My parad- yeah. yeah, well, because that's part of it. You see, I, I, I got um, interested in this whole environmental movement. And then what happened was that it got hijacked. And it got hijacked, as all new paradigm shifts do, by a group of people that see either the political potential of it or the financial potential or both. Mm. And 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 I'll give you a parallel um, paradigm shift of the 20th century uh, with, with environmentalism was feminism. Mm. Okay. Now, what ha- happens is this small group of people grab this idea and then exploit it. And the reason they can explain... Yeah, hang on, because originally it was meant to liberate women. Yep, exactly. That's the whole point. Hmm. That's the whole point. Because, and, and, and people see it as that. People say, hey, Still, hey yeah. this feminism's a good idea. This environmentalism's a good idea. But here's the difficulty. With humans, um, they, first of all, they're afraid of change. 
And the reason they're afraid of change is because they know that change always occurs. We, you mentioned that in your intro about climate change. Mm-hmm. But they also know that when change occurs, somebody gets hurt. Yes, there are winners, but somebody gets hurt. And they don't know if they're the one that might get hurt. So there's always a conservative reaction to change for that reason. And, and also, the, the second question that they ask themselves is, well, how far do we go with this? And most people cannot define the limits of the new paradigm shift. And um, that is, I I struggled all my career with extremists. What's the role of extremists in society? Uh, You know, nothing exists without a reason. And I finally figured out that the role of extremists is to define the limits of an idea for the majority. So, for example, with feminism, a lot of women were saying, yeah, hey, listen, that's a good idea. There's still a lot of changes that need to be made. But how far do we go with it? And then when they started burning the bras, the majority of women said, no, 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 hang on a minute. You know, and, and, and so the extremists had started to define a limit and, and allowed people then to, to raise questions, which they were afraid to do because they didn't want to oppose what seemed like a good idea. And that, of course, is what hap- has happened with environmentalism, that, that if you dare to say anything, and all of the politicians around the world are still afraid to appear not green enough. Mm. Right? Well, I'm going to go back to, to yep. how environmentalism have suffered. But yes. let's start with the first things first. There's different yeah. uh, memes out there. Some say uh, global warming, of course. Some say the more neutral climate change. Some even talk about the new ice age. And I'm no expert like you, but to me, it seems pretty clear that there is huge climate change going on in the world today and that it has gone on for, for some time, maybe some decades already. What do you say about that? And I'm not even talking about causations now. I'm just a phenomenon itself. No. Well, okay. Because most people think that people like you deny that there's even changes going on. Oh, and and, uh, over my career, I've been called a global warming skeptic and Mm. then latterly a climate change denier. Denier. And and that occurred. (laughs) That's an important shift, uh, Al, because um, when it was when the issue was global warming, which, by the way, it still is. They just don't call it that anymore. Mm. But what happened was. Um, uh, what Thomas Huxley warned about over a hundred years ago when he said the great tragedy of science is a beautiful hypothesis destroyed by an ugly fact. Okay. <laughs> and well the, the ugly fact was that starting in 1998 and up to 1998, by the way, uh, but starting in 1980, uh, the, the global temperatures had increased and the CO2 appeared to increase along with that. And so, of course, their argument that an increase in CO2 is causing the warming uh, w- allowed them to push that as their political agenda. So, so it was so, so basic that all they did was observe correlation and they thought yep. that was causation. Exactly. Very unscientific. And that's the oh, that's the biggest danger. I I taught my students about that. I drum that into them. And mm. the example I use, by the way, is that um, diet coke causes obesity. 
And my evidence <laughs> is that more obese people drink Diet Coke yeah. than any other group in society. You only need a trivium and a quadrivium to debunk <laughs> these things. But, you know, yeah, today it, yeah. education is bankrupt. I know. So, yeah. yep. and, and by the way, back to your comment about science. Yeah. Science got itself into problems because in order to uh, defeat religion which they saw as a challenge back around Darwin's time. Mm -hmm. And they chose Darwin, although he would not have agreed to it, as the champion to defeat religion. In order to defeat the dogma of religion, science became as dogmatic as the religion it was trying to defeat. Exactly. And now people think that science is absolute and sacrosanct and can't say anything wrong or do anything wrong. They do. And in my view, before, I'm old enough to remember how it was before, And then yep. it seems to me that the general uh, man was more critical to science before, but that's because they had a better understanding of science. Today, I see, especially among young people, it's become like this authoritarian worship, yep. which is anti-science by its nature. So we have this ironic situation that we've gotten scientism, which is forget about the method of science. It's all about yep. the institution of science. And that's a terrifying world because all they have to do then is fill this quote-unquote science bag with whatever they want doesn't have to be scientifically funded at all exactly. and they can get people worship it as exactly good old medieval times two two problems with this al one is of course and, and i know this from studying universities and students and the population about 85 percent of the population are art students and 15 percent are <laughs> science students and and therefore the science people that understand the science are in a minority right off the top and in fact you'll get people that will brag that they can't uh, do math or add up numbers they're proud of that but I yeah, but it's worse than that do you really think that those 15 percent know science just because there's Study science no, today. They No, and they and I I have pushed all my career for a mandatory history of science course in exactly. all in high school right. uh, to understand that. And and certainly too many scientists don't understand the, the scientific method. But you see, that's also part of the problem of specialization. Yeah. That, that they become specialized in one small area and have no idea of the larger picture. Mm. Um, but um, the uh, so you've got that uh, idea uh, that, that's developed. Yes, but is there climate change, Tim? Is yeah, it? sorry. Yes, we get back. We keep uh, dodging. I keep dodging that question. That's okay. You, it's uh, your prerogative to go everywhere. I'll try to guide us back. <laughs> no, well, the problem is that, that it's almost like I know too much about all of this and, and, and it, you know, trying to, to simplify it. Um, and, and this is That's the difficulty. The You're trying to simplify what are very, actually very complex things. Yeah. And and uh, but anyway, uh, up uh, where I was was that after 1998, the temperatures of the globe started to decline, and it has basically leveled off and in fact declined slightly since 1998. That at the same time, the CO2 level continued to rise. And this was the ugly fact that these people that were pushing this false CO2 agenda were confronted with, that the CO2 was going up, but the temperature wasn't going up as they said it should. And um, so, uh, and we've actually got leaked emails, the emails that came out of the climatic research unit at, at East Anglia, the University of Anglia, mm. where all of this was being concocted 
um, and and what the scientists, the corruption that was actually going on. Uh, the the leaked emails. One comes from the Men's Center, which was in charge of public relations for this whole global warming issue uh, on the campus. And uh, guy. Okay, okay. Look, uh, people who are listening are probably a little confused. Uh, you you're now referring to a huge scandal that happened a few years ago. Approximately when was this? Was in 2009. Yes, and it's called the Climate Gate. Isn't yes, it? exactly. So uh, explain to us what Climate Gate is. Continue. Okay, well, very simply, in the whole political agenda of, of global warming, there was a, a, a the Kyoto Protocol, which was a, a plan to implement carbon taxes worldwide, to take money from the rich nations and give it to the poor nations because they'd suffered from the global warming caused by the CO2 production of fossil fuels by the successful nations. And the Kyoto Protocol was scheduled to be approved at the world level at a conference in Copenhagen in 2009, December of 2009. In the month prior to that, Uh, a meeting, which, by the way, is called the Conference of the Parties. Mm -hmm. And that's the political group that decide how much money is going to go to climate research and how much uh, uh, and how what the politicians have to do to combat it. So it's really the nerve center for the whole thing. So they are setting the prices. Yeah, they're setting the prices. They're uh, not only the price, but also the, the, the ideals and the agenda. Are they, are they getting the money too? Oh, of course. Of course. This this is all money that, that's put through the United Nations. This mm. is why Trump pulling the money out of it all is, is undermining the whole thing. Um, because, uh, but I will get to this a bit later. But anyway, back to the climate gate issue. In the month prior to uh, the meeting in Copenhagen at which they were going to introduce this global plan of Kyoto Protocol, which was essentially uh, a one world government. Because they, they chose global warming because it, it was a, a global impact. And the argument was that no one nation can deal with this. So you need a world government to deal with it. And therefore, we're the people that can do it for you. That's what was going on. And, and so somebody, uh, and I happen to think it was somebody inside the uh, climatic research unit at the University of East Anglia, uh, leaked a thousand emails initially And this just blew everything out of the water because suddenly... So hang on, uh, so in these emails, they admitted yeah. that they wanted a one-world government? Oh, yeah. They, they're talking wow. about how, how, they, how they push the agenda, how they keep the focus on CO2. Because I know they were talking about how they uh, cheated with the data. Yep. Oh, yeah. That they, I know. Oh, and that's, that's like a mind blow in itself, you know? Well, exactly. And in fact, um, there's a very good book, if I can find uh, the details on it, by um, uh, Mosher and Fuller. And here's here's what they write on the back of the book. The book's mm -hmm. called Climate Gate uh, and um, Crew Tapes. And, and here's the here's the summary on the back of the book. They actively work to evade freedom of information requests, deleting emails, documents and even climate data. They tried to corrupt the peer review principles that are the mainstay of modern science, reviewing each other's work, sabotaging efforts of opponents trying to publish their own work, and threatening editors of journals who didn't bow to their demands. In Jeez. fact, they got one editor fired 
at, at the geophysical research letters. I've heard I've heard uh, a lot of editors have been fired who weren't uh, willing to get a lo- go along with. But now you yes. talk about this specific group. Yeah, the, 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 yes. And, okay. and then the, the third thing on, on the list on the back of the book is they changed the shape of their own data in materials shown to politicians charged with changing the shape of our world. So these people know they are lying and, and cheating. Uh, oh, exactly. Wow. And, and, and that, that's what's frightening about it, because it, 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 what it tells you is it's premeditated. Yeah. And as you know, the courts make a distinction between a, a murder of passion and a yeah. murder of premeditation. And, and and that that is why it, it's so devastating. But anyway, back to the global warming climate issue. <coughs> what happened was that, um, as I said, the the uh, actual evidence in the temperature record and the CO2 level record started to diverge uh, in contradiction to what they predicted should happen. And in these emails, this Nick at the cli- at the um, associate with the climate research unit in East Anglia, he wrote an email and said, look, um, I'm starting to have difficulty with the media because, uh, and this, by the way, is about 2003, 2004. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm starting to have difficulty with the media because we're getting record cold temperatures. We're getting record high snowfalls. And they're saying, whatever happened to your global warming? And and of course, so he writes an email to the others and says, look, I think we should start calling it global warming and start calling it climate change. And a fellow by the name of Yellen, uh, and I've forgotten his first name off the top of my head, K-J-E-A-E-N, yeah, uh, he, he, he was the Swedish uh, representative at the IPCC, the United Nations uh, Agency. Mm. He wrote back and said, yes, I agree. We've got to start calling it gl- uh, climate change instead of global warming. So they 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 deliberately move the goalposts instead of what proper science should do of saying, hey, the, the evidence isn't fitting our, our prediction. Our predictions are wrong. Then we should go back and look at our science. Because if you want to met, if you want one single word that summarizes science, it's the ability to predict. Yeah. Prediction. If you can. Uh, and verify. Ver- verify and predict. Well, verify, yeah. But but prediction uh, is a verification of your science. Yeah, that's true. It's yeah. inherent in that. Yeah. And so if your predictions are wrong, your science is wrong. These people knew that. But what they did was they simply changed the name instead of correcting their science. Mm. And this is a further evidence of, of how corrupt this whole thing was. And and as they, that, so after about 2003, 2004, and by the way, some of the media and some of the public uh, recognize this. For me, I, I recognize it because, as I said, I was called a global warming skeptic. And here's the interesting point about this. I had been making our, the argument publicly, as, as other scientists had, that all scientists are skeptics. If you're not a skeptic, you're not a scientist. Yep, exactly. It's the very basis of science is to be skeptical. Today, it means being uh, skeptical to everything that is not already in the mainstream, yes, and what is accepted in the mainstream shall be worshipped yes. religiously. Yes, exactly. That's it, it, so-called science today. But uh, yes. Tim, yeah. you just took a huge nuclear bomb and you threw it in the beginning of an interview <laughs> because people listening to this, hearing what you're saying, and the, uh, these are facts. Go verify it, people. These aren't the rants of a madman. You can check <laughs> everything he says. It's available information. But it's just very hard to begin with this big conspiracy. I want to begin a little softer, actually. Okay. 
okay. <laughs> the, because I want them to understand. I mean, okay, so it's so the whole thing is a conspiracy. But let's let's start with before we leave the first topic about climate change. Do you accept that there is a change in climate? Yes, and I'll tell you how I got into that because this is a very important part of this story mm. uh, that the public can relate to. I flew for nine years in the Canadian Air Force, and four of those years were in anti-submarine work over the North Atlantic, mm. and five of those years were in search and rescue in the Ar Canadian Arctic right to the North Pole. And one of the things that uh, uh, I became very aware of, particularly when I started uh, giving climate uh, and weather briefings for the air crews as, as I was an operations officer um, was um, how bad the weather forecasting was and and uh, so uh, after I lost my flying category because of a hearing loss uh, and noise pollution by the way is another big issue in the world we got to deal with but mm. I lost my flying category because of a hearing loss and I, I chose not to fly a desk so I took a small cash settlement from the government and decided to go back to university and find out why forecasting was so bad. And I have to I have to just inject yes. here that uh, yes. Pierce Corbin, a brother yep. of none other than Jeremy Corbin, yep. one of the reasons he's become so popular speaker is because you're talking about the ability to predict. Man, yep. he yep. he keeps predicting on British TV what will happen and all the naysayers of course ridicule him. Yeah, and by the time uh, <laughs> it comes, he's right there wrong. Yeah, so well, uh, the, yeah. one zero for the ability to predict. Well, and, and he's a climate skeptic, right? And I'll tell you, and, and he's an he's an astrophysicist, and yeah. what he does is he looks at the factors that cause climate change, right, uh, and causes the weather, such as uh, the Earth's magnetism, uh, that that others don't look at. Are, are you familiar with Robert Schock of Boston yes. University? Yes. He thinks it's the sun, and yes. it makes sense to me. Do you think uh, well, that could be? Let's, yeah, let's get that to that a bit later, because okay. uh, it, it's the sun in so many different ways. Okay. Um, but anyway, I know Pierce Corbin personally, mm -hmm. and, and I've been communicating with him. The, what was interesting about Pierce was that he made so many accurate weather forecasts that the betting shops in England would no longer take his bets. <laughs> That's an that's a good empirical measure of how accurate his forecasting is. I agree. I'd rather listen to the bookies than to yeah, some uh, self-conceived uh, yeah. guru. Yeah. Exactly. The yeah. other the other thing is a member of parliament got up in Britain and said, look, let's close down the weather office because they're consistently wrong and just hire peers to do our forecasting wow. for us. Wow. We can replace the whole department. <laughs> but we'll come to that because yep. the, the, the bureaucracies of the weather offices are involved in this scam. Uh, uh, they're not they're not fully aware of it, but I'll explain how and why okay. that happened. Mm -hmm. OK, but but the other thing is that. Um, both Pierce and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and this is one of these great coincidences of this very small world we live in, we both went to the same Catholic elementary school in a town called Chippenham in England over six Hang on, are you, are you really British originally? Yes. I thought you were Canadian, but your accent no. is American. Yeah, but you know why? Because the, the North American accent is, comes from the west of England. <laughs> it's all the uh, yes, all those fishermen and, and Irishmen and Englishmen going to North America right. and transferring. So uh, the west of England, they roll their R's just like Americans do. Ah. 
so so uh, it was very easy for me to become uh, you know to slip into an an American accent. Now, uh, a, a lot of Canadians will, who are native-born will pick up on words that I will say, like garage and, and words like that, and they'll say, oh, you're not, you're not Canadian. Mm. But um, th this is another fascinating area. Did you of, say of tomato? To, no, tomato. I, I changed that. Uh, to, yeah. But um, anyway, and, and by the way, the English of the uh, southern United States, the Appalachians, which everybody f sounds is so bizarre, that's actually the dialect of Shakespeare. That's how <laughs> really? Yeah, because what, what happens what happens is when a language is transposed to a different country or region, yeah. it stops evolving. Right. All right. So when if you go to Quebec, they speak medieval French. Right. Weird. Okay. And the Quebec, uh, French French people laugh at them. Because yeah, I know the, that. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, I say Americans also laugh a little of yeah. English Canadians. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you see, this is another thing. Uh, people, uh, uh, Europeans hear an uh, American accent and uh, they just assume they're all the same. But the dialects are so different across each region. Yeah, but but you're, you're a geographist. Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but yeah. little Norway yes. is one of the countries in the world with most variations in accent and dialects. So when I speak yeah. here, people think, hang on, this chap doesn't sound Norwegian. Where's he from? France, <laughs> Germany, Holland? No, people. Yeah. My town has this accent. Yeah. But if you go like uh, to the next town, there's another accent. So but it's a long story why it's like that. And I'll not hijack the show no. today. Okay. Let's go back to all the interesting yeah. stuff yeah. you were talking yeah. about. Yeah, it's, it's all interesting. That's a do you have the thread? Uh, yes, I do. I do have the thread. Okay. Uh, I, I, as I said, I learned from my my flying experience that forecasting was bad. Yeah. I wanted to find out why after you know weather forecasting, which by the way really began with the First World War, when uh, air, air, we started to have uh, aircraft involved in the war, and the f the pilots of the First World War wanted weather forecasts. That's why. Uh, so many of the terms in weather forecasting and weather are related to war. So they talk about outbreaks of cold air, yeah. fronts. And this is because a, I, I believe, I believe he's a Norwegian, but a, a fellow by the name of Bjerknes, B-J-E-R-K-N-E-S. Sounds very Norwegian. Okay, yeah. yeah, well, but he was a meteorologist at the time, and he was the one that came up with this whole idea of weather forecasting and all the terminology associated with it. Okay. No wonder we are very fond of talking about the weather here, even oh, more well, than the Brits. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, like, but like Mark Twain said, everybody talks about it, but nobody, nobody does, does anything about it. <laughs> yeah, except that's not true today. But we'll go, no, go exactly. get to that at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, um, so I I thought, well, I, I'm going to go back to university and and find out why. Um, now, it got caught up, of course, in, as I mentioned earlier in the program, with the whole environmental thing. Mm. Um, and I, I said, well, okay, where can I study about weather and climate? And I got directed uh, uh, to, by my thesis supervisor, who was at uh, the PhD supervisor, who was at the University of London, England, to, to spend a lot of time with a fellow by the name of Hubert Lamb. Now, Lamb... Uh, was a forecaster during the war doing weather forecasts for bombers flying over Europe. 
And uh, the bo- they were coming back and saying, your forecast almost killed us. You told us it would be clear sky and we got freezing rain. Hmm. Um, and, and so Lamb, after the war, said, I'm going to find out how we can improve forecasts, why they're so bad. He then got into the realization that the only way you can improve forecasting is to understand the climate of the past, how much it's changed, and what are the mechanisms of that change. Mm. And so, ironically, he set up the Climate Research Unit where all the corruption later occurred. Mm. And and what was sad was when I was visiting him, they were already pushing him out the door. I mean, I watched it. They ridiculed him because mm. he was challenging what they were doing. And uh, he eventually just gave up. And he writes about this in his autobiography, by the way. But it just demonstrates what you were implying uh, earlier in your yep. in our conversation. But, but you didn't say it all the way. But I can say it now. It's the old rule of Gandhi. First, they ignore you. Yep. Then they yep. ridicule you. Then they yep. fight you. Yep. And then you get some kind of exactly, yeah. exactly. And we're in we're in the fighting stage right now. That's a good anyway, place to be. It's better than being in the ridicule stage. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Oh no, we made we made the progress because you cool. know when I when I started. Um, uh, The minute I went on a radio program, there were the 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 interviewer would attack me right away. Yeah, yeah. And then anybody that phoned in, and I mean, and I had death threats and everything, email and over the phone. And yeah, we, I want to hear more about that yeah, uh, okay. later. Okay, yeah. but anyway, anyway, so uh, what Lamb had realized was that unless you understand the climate of the past, you're not going to uh, be able to predict the climate of the future. Right. And um, he wrote a magnificent two-volume set. Uh, in 1977, the second volume is Climate, Past, Present, and Future. And in that uh, volume, he identifies all of the possible causes of climate change and then uh, all of the things that you need to look at to start to understand it. Plus, he brought together all of the long-term historical and, and uh, other sources of, of information about temperature change and climate change in the past. Mm. And so out of that um i then did, i so after my philosophical honor thesis uh which as i said looked at humans as a cause of change so obviously the climate would be part of that i then did a master's thesis which looked at um energy inputs into environments because of course everything is driven by energy you've yep. already mentioned the sun uh, and that's why ignoring it as the major cause of change is is absolutely unbelievable yeah and i was so shocked when i saw that in the oh. un climate panel they booted yeah. out all the solar scientists that's insane yeah of course they should have more solar scientists than anything else <laughs> Yeah, but but that but those solar scientists and people like Willie Soon, who who also got attacked viciously, and and he worked with Sally Balionis. They they attacked her so viciously that she actually quit academia and science altogether. Right, right. Because as a woman and a redheaded woman, and you I, you should see the emails that she re- received. It's unbelievable, and that was from academics. Sexist stuff, personal. Yeah, yeah in yeah. fact. In fact, some of the attacks came from a guy by the name of John Holdren, another scientist who became Obama's science czar, and he mm. personally attacked her. But anyway, um, uh, so so uh, uh, 
Lamb, as I said, very quickly realized that the uh, the climate of the past had changed enormously. Now, that's a very important idea because you're saying to me, well, yeah, climate changes. Uh, who's arguing with that? And the answer is uh, nobody's really arguing with it, but nobody or very few people know how much it's changed and how rapidly it's changed. Okay, okay but, but there is one crucial yeah. question. I want you to address yeah. it immediately. Is it changing in a way that is unprecedented? That's the question. It, well, exactly. And, and of course, what happened was that as we started to show that it was that ch climate change was normal, then they started to say, oh, no, it's changing more rapidly. It, therefore, it's unnatural. Yeah, extreme weather they talk about. Exactly. And e even right-wing TV stations like Fox, they don't just have the weather reports, they have extreme weather reports. Right. Well, whatever happened to normal weather? Well, I'll tell you what's normal. Hurricanes are normal. Okay. Right? Yeah. But they're, it's, and everything is measured by how it impacts humans. Hmm. See, this is the thing. And, and, and uh, just to give you an idea of, of how important that whole idea is, um, and uh, we, if you look at the Greenpeace report from 2089, or sorry, 1989, um, uh, by uh, by Greenpeace, it's called global warming. They say in that report that CO2 is added to the atmosphere naturally and unnaturally. Mm -hmm. And everybody reads that and says, "Oh yeah, okay. Well, but what does that mean?" Right. People read things and they don't stop to think about what the words are actually saying. And of course, the word unnatural applies to humans. So one of the underlying themes of the whole environmental movement and the climate change movement is that humans are unnatural and whatever humans do is not natural. Yeah, but hang on, uh, devil's lawyer, uh, yeah. if not actually a real lawyer, because it makes sense. That's the thing, because let's say humans have been around for 10,000 years without any mechanical technological feats okay? okay then we suddenly start inventing stuff that alters the chemistry around us in and in huge scales that's the whole point are you saying that's not happening no i'm not saying that's not happening what i'm saying is that's natural the german philosopher goethe said the unnatural that too is natural you see, because because the assumption is that if humans do it, it's unnatural. But why? If you accept that humans are natural, which all of these people do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's semantics. What I mean is. No, no, making... no, 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 no. I've got Al. I'm going to stop you there. That is okay. not semantics. This is absolutely at the center of the whole issue. And, and this is why you see they keep bringing Darwin forward. You see Richard Dawkins book on God is dead and yeah. Christopher Hitchens and all this stuff. Morons. No, you, you see, when what Darwin did, was, or at least not Darwin himself didn't do it, but the people that were pushing the science issue was they said that humans are not here because of God. We're here because of, of evolution. Okay, forget the word natural. The question is, uh, are, are, we, but, are but, we contributing to uh, unprecedented amounts of pollution? Uh, I think that's pretty clear. No, it, it, it's not clear because, you see, you use the word pollution. Yeah. Who defines pollution? What is pollution? If you talk to the global warming people, oh, CO2 is a pollutant. And look at uh, okay. Obama ran around saying carbon pollution. Well, yeah. first of all, he's not talking about carbon. He's talking about CO2. Yeah. And the difference is carbon is a solid and CO2 is a gas. And CO2 is not a pollutant. 
No, it's natural. It's natural in the atmosphere. But it's let's say exhaust in exhaust from cars. Is there no uh, poisonous gases there? Ah, that's a different issue. That's a different issue. In other words, it's like I, I just mentioned hurricanes. Mm. Hurricanes are perfectly natural. But they're we destructive. Decide, yeah, they, they're destructive, but they're only destructive if humans are in their path. Mm. Right? I mean, the insurance companies got away with this. Okay, after. I get it. So so you're, you're actually pointing out that we have a huge anthropocentric bias. Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. And and the reason for it is because Darwin failed. You go and read his Origin of Species. He doesn't mention humans at all. Mm. And how can you talk about Origin of Species without mentioning humans? And and a fellow by the name of Alfred Russell Wallace, who came out with Darwin's idea before Darwin did. Wonderful scientist, by the way. Yeah, exactly. He, he did the real work. Exactly. And he challenged Darwin. He said to Darwin, if you don't explain the difference between humans and all other animals, which is so vast that your theory must encompass it, your theory is nonsense. Now, I agree with Darwin about natural selection, but I don't agree with him about evolutionary theory. Mm. And that was the point that Russell Wallace was making. And Wallace, Wallace and, and Darwin said, okay, and 11 years after he published Origin, he published The Descent of Man, in which Darwin tried to claim, uh, well, yeah, there's no one other creature that can do all the things humans can do, but there are individual animals that can do the things that humans can do. Mm. Uh, uh, that's where the joke started about if you put a, a, a thousand chimpanzees in front of typewriters, they'll eventually type Shakespeare's play. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. But look, if we're going to take the intelligence design debate, we'll never get through today. That I can well, tell I, you. I know, I know we won't, but, but Wallace was the one that first, he didn't use that term, but he was the first one that suggested it. Yep. And he, he put even put consciousness, as scientists now know, and, as an important factor in uh, mutation and stuff. Exactly. And, and, and that's, we just started to verify that now. Exactly. With the uh, cutting edge research. Exactly. But what I'm, the point I'm making to you is that it has total influence upon the whole climate and global warming and environmentalism issue. Because, okay. um, you see, one of the things that happened with, and I hate keep going, going back to Darwin, but mm -hmm. when, when Darwin did his work, and this is one of the problems, by the way, people say, oh, Darwin said, and I say, well, have you read Darwin? Well, no, but this person, I, say, I don't want to know what some person said. It's the neo-Darwinists, right? Exactly. Exactly. I know. And, and I, what, you know what I did in all my classes, especially the graduate classes, I insisted that the students go back and read the original documents. Mm. Don't tell me what somebody else said they said. I called that carping on carping. Yeah, I hear the American education system. Obviously, you're in Canada, but I yeah. hear the American education system is so bad that they're not, they never read primary sources. They never even read secondary oh. sources. No, it's just third. <laughs> It's not education, it's indoctrination. Exactly. It's not exactly. It's dumbing down. But, yes. but yeah. anyway, but back to the Darwin yeah. thing. You see, Darwin knew, and you asked about rate of change. Mm -hmm. Darwin knew how rapidly the finches were changing in the Galapagos. And he realized that they were changing within one and two generations. So that the change was far more rapid than that anybody had allowed. Now, in Darwin's time, the general Western view of the world was called Neptunism. Neptunism, of course, was the biblical view of before the flood and after the flood. Mm. So Darwin comes along 
and he throws out all of that and says, and and by the way, two two documents that influenced Darwin, and this I've got to include all of this in our discussion. Two of the two of the books that influenced Darwin, and he took them with him on his voyage on the Beagle. One was Sir Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology. The reason that that book influenced him was because Lyell was proving that the earth was more than uh, the Bishop Usher had said at 4004 BC, you know, that the earth was millions of years old. Lyell actually claimed it was 126 million, which doesn't even come close, but it certainly was far in excess of anything that that most people believed at that time. That provided Darwin with the the time in which for in which evolution could occur right mm. that was the first problem with his theory mm. the second um, uh, book that um, darwin took with him was thomas malthus's book on um, essays on population and of course the malthus book uh, which was by the way completely wrong and I'll come back to this later when we talk about how this influenced the whole climate issue mm. but malthus's book claim that the world population would outgrow the food supply yeah all right and and so um but you know this swedish scientist i think is dead now but he have uh, uh, but he, he he was active until recently he has debunked the whole uh, myth about uh, we are overpopulated and there's oh, not course. enough resources oh, yeah. i forgot his no, name no. he has glasses yeah, no, I, very famous yes. guy yeah, yeah, I know who you mean, but but I I've written about this as well. Okay, and and, and in, in what fact, book? What's the book? Oh, oh, I've got. If you look at my website, I've got articles on it. Okay, articles. And I, it's also included in in my uh, book, the Human Deception, uh, the the greatest. Uh, just uh, while we're talking today, if yeah. there's uh, something you've written about that you want out, yeah. just mention the book because it's important yeah. that the listener have the possibility to verify all we're saying. Yeah. And if they read your books, they will see you know your sources, everything that this is proper work. It's not just okay. Yeah, the the book that's got all of the um, citations and footnotes, uh, as academia would do. So, of course, the, the general public don't read books like that. But no. it's called the deliberate corruption of climate science. Mm. But you also write for the public, right? Popular books. Oh, yes. I write public popular articles, but I also uh, post uh, all of this on my website at drtimball.com. D-R-T-I-M-B-A-L-L.com. And and when we put up your presentation page at our website, we'll make sure to link all your websites, but we'll also put out your bibliography. We usually do that because we have so many book readers among our audience. So, So we'll do that too. Yeah. Okay. Now we're we're back to the rate of change. Yep. And and Malthus and the the uh, we'll, we'll come back to him because he became his idea became the basis of the Club of Rome, which was formed in 1968 by Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. And the Club of Rome said that not only are is the human population outgrowing food supply, it's outgrowing all resources. Mm-hmm. And that was brought out in a book that they published called Limits to Growth. And so the actual global warming issue is not about global warming. It's about uh, limiting and controlling population. And that Swedish scientist you referenced is absolutely right. By the way, just to give you some idea, Canada is the second largest country in the world. In terms of geography. Yes, in terms of land area. But we have the same population as California. 
Wow. And I, I, is it true that you can take all the people in the world and put them into the state of Texas and everybody could live on 10 yeah. times 10 uh, yeah. quadrant meter, yes. square meter? Yes. Wow. And in fact, it's not the state of Texas. It's half the state of Texas. Half the state. And you can put you can put all the world's population under those same conditions. And, and then we're not even counting uh, stuff like uh, making seas on the water or that we can build in the height. You know, that's right. how we usually live, right? We have like, oh, it, many it, stores. Yes. Yeah. No, pe- people people uh, congregate in areas where the climate is good or the, they can grow the food supply. Yeah. And, and that's why you see that most of the world's population is concentrated in, in uh, delta areas. And, of course, Europe is really just one big delta. <laughs> yeah. Except yeah. for Scandinavia. I, I apologize for that. But it, yeah, and, of course, uh, Belarus and stuff like yeah, that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Darwin took Malthus's book with him, and he said in his, in his writing that that book influenced him more than anything else, as I say, but the problem was that Malthus was absolutely wrong. Uh, but what happened was that that he and Lyell and Malthus and all these people were communicating with each other, and they realized that the political implications of what he was going to say was devastating, particularly to the church. Hmm. And this is the same thing as the Copernicus thing. Copernicus didn't sign approval of publication of his work until his deathbed, because he, as a canon of the church, that is a lawyer of the church, knew what implications it had for, for religion. Hmm. And, and so uh, this is the problem for science, is that you're constantly battling these other uh, blind faiths, if you want. But as I said, in battling religion, uh, science became as blind faith and dogmatic as the religion it replaced. Yeah, and, and it's natural, because if you observe that the ruling theories always go together with the ruling powers, the ruling exactly. classes, then exactly. science by nature is subversive. Yeah. By nature, science is really revolutionary, but that doesn't fit in a world where you have uh, power players, hierarchy, it, because that, then they will doom science always to be, real science always to be disregarded. Yeah, yeah. Whereas fake science can work with the rulers. Yeah, but here's the thing, Al, that you're absolutely right, but science has been a dominant, especially in Western society, since Copernicus, 400 years, right? Right, right. And, and, and certainly in the last 200 years since Darwin, or it's 150, 90, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it's been dominant, and it's dominant in today's society, but the courts still won't deal with scientific pro- conflicts, the opening statement of the judge in my trial was this courtroom will not be used to to debate and settle the global warming issue. Okay. <laughs> we'll get back to that too. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But anyway, so this is what Darwin was confronted with and Lyell and these others. So what uh, two supporters of Darwin, one by the name of Hutton and the other by the name of Playfair, they were both geologists. Okay. They came up with the term uniformitarianism. 
And now, if that sounds like a religion, it effectively is. I know. I know them from uh, uh, other debates, namely Egyptology and yep. archaeology yep. and stuff like that. Exactly. So uniformitarianism became the Western scientific view of the world. And their view is incremental change, right? Ch yeah, change is gradual over very long periods of time. Mm. Now, that's the attitude and understanding that most of Western society has today. Hmm. Right. I talk with the Chinese. They have got a completely different view. They can't they can't understand what we're talking about. Indians, too. In, Indians exactly. know there were ancient civilizations, for example. Exactly. Exactly. And and so the whole Western society is looking at the world and saying, look, um, change and rapid change is not normal. Hmm. That's that's what their preset is. Mm. Right. And, 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 and people, you've got to get your mind around this idea. And I, you know where I first came across it, a, a good friend of mine uh, in, in England went to school with and he became a, a senior officer in the Metropolitan Police Force in London, England. And we're going we're walking down the street towards Hyde Park Corner to have lunch. And as we're walking along the street, he's saying, oh, this guy's selling cocaine and this person's doing that. In other words, his view of the street was as a policeman, right. he saw things that I would never, ever have seen. Exactly. You, 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 you're kind of dependent on the sunglasses you have, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I was, but I was able to point out things to him on the street that he didn't see either. And this is what we we've got to to learn to understand. Good By the point. way. One of the ideas that, that I loved, uh, the, the practicality of farmers outside of Winnipeg, because they knew the people in the city knew so little about agriculture, <laughs> on, uh, when you went west from Winnipeg on the main highway, the Trans-Canada Highway, some of the farmers put signs uh, saying flax, rapeseed, <laughs> telling, the <laughs> telling them what it, the products were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and and by the way, of course, you see, you see with programs like Sesame Street, where they have to show children where the milk comes from. Yeah, we're so alienated. Many people exactly. grow up today and they've never been in nature. They yep. only live in a city their whole life. Yep. And, but, you know, you're talking with a Norwegian. Yep. We are living straight into nature. So it's different here from most of the world. Exactly. But Norwegians have to understand that other people see the world differently. This is what amuses me. I worked with Russian, and in fact, at the time, there were Soviet climatologists, and I worked with Chinese climatologists. And I discovered that the, in, in China, they don't separate the, the atmosphere from the land. So whether but, but, but how, how can India, China, all these countries go along with the UN thing then? If well, uh, it's just a little bias from here. Yeah, well, basically they're not um, because you, you notice now um, uh, the reason that, of course, they're, they've been going along. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Debunk immediately the consensus myth because yeah. as normal, yeah. uh, you know, we don't know these things. So we just read and we hear that. Oh, everybody agrees. It's a huge because oh. you're a freak if you're not. <laughs> you lose your job if you're not. Yes. So, so what's the reality? Well, th again, this was a premeditated thing. When you go and re read those leaked emails, they said, look, we, they, in fact, they set up a website called Real Climate, which was uh, designed to counteract and to promote um, these, these false ideas. It, w it was a PR campaign. And, and of course, the first use of, the, of it was by a woman by the name of Naomi Oreski. And she, as a, his, a, a 
claims to be a history of science expert. And what she did was, and, and the listeners will understand this, because keywords have become central to our society because of Google and research. Mm -hmm. She put into her computer the words global warming and got back 925 articles and she said all 925 supported the argument that there was global warming but they just mentioned it they didn't necessarily support it yeah but well but it was it was predetermined by the keywords that she used hmm. You see, I raised this issue in my court case, and, and I, I, I have uh, learned very early that if you want to get something uh, to the attention of certain people, you make sure the keywords are in your title, hmm. because the Google search will pick them up then and get them to the right That's people. clickbait. That's not science. Well, but that's what she did. That's what Naomi, Naomi Oreski did. And and Al Gore used her, her stuff in his movie, Inconvenient Truth. With a famous hockey graph. Right, the hockey graph. Which has been debunked now. Okay, exactly. And, and, and Al Gore said, uh, here's, here's the consensus. Well, of course, uh, a consensus should be a warning that this is political because <laughs> consensus does not apply to science at all. Exactly. You can't just buy by majority vote what's true. No, but uh, that's what they were trying to do. Right. And to me, that was just proof that, that this was. Now, um, uh, Einstein said it. He said, I can have an under 100 experiments to prove that I'm right. I've only got to have one that proves me wrong. And that's the end of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it only takes one white crowd to prove that not all crowds are black, for instance. Exactly. But anyway, now what they did was, what well, they, and I mean the United Nations and the supporters of this whole scam, yeah. was that they then, they got their disciples. And as Machiavelli said, people that want to uh, deceive will always find others to do the deceiving for them. Yeah. Useful idiots, huh? Uh, exactly, yes. Yeah, or the sheeple, as I like somebody called them. But, but they deliberately infiltrated uh, the... Oh, yeah. The, Oh d d yes. Yeah, tell us. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the people that uh, that got drawn in by it, and by the way, of course, research funding and government money or using money to do it yep. is 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 a major factor. And and by the way, I want to. That's another thing I want to correct. While I think about it, yep. people on the right, like Rush Limbaugh, say, "Oh, follow the money if you want to get to the base of the story." That's only true up to a certain level, and it's only true for. Because uh, it's also about ideology, not just well, money. Not just ideology, it's about power. Control, of course. About As power. everything in the world. Wars, you name right. it. Right, and, and when you mention Maurice Strong or George Soros and people like this, mm. they, it's all about power. They, these people also know, by the way, that if you get the power, the money will follow. Right, because it's weird how, you know, they say that uh, few descending scientists that even yep. gets voiced, yep. they say they're all in the pocket of the oil, oil companies. Com yes, yeah. But I see that oil companies support the global warming paradigm. Well, they're even paying. Yeah. What, but but they 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 think that buying off these ideologues they're going to appease them. Oh, okay. But of course now they're getting sued by those same ideologues and they're wondering what what are they what are you doing? We try to help you, mm. and, and that's what's laughable. But but uh, no the the consensus argument that re 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 hello 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 Al. Oh my God! You know I'm pretty sure they're tapping your line. 
<laughs> you were getting you were getting to the heart of the matter. No wonder we were disconnected. Well, well, it, you know, certainly um, you get paranoid about these yeah. things. Uh, there's yeah. no question. But anyway, uh, yeah, what, what we were talking about was uh, uh, Professor John Cook at at. Um, Queensland University in Australia, mm-hmm. and he took over 14,000 scientific abstracts and using his own definitions, decided that 97% of them supported uh, the global warming consensus. Uh, Lord Moncton, Christopher Moncton and others actually went and looked at those abstracts and using Cook's own definitions, Moncton found that only 3% supported the global warming consensus, mm-hmm. that what Cook did was literally cook the book. <laughs> and and um, there's been attempts by various people, such as uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts in Australia, to get the University of Queensland to condemn what Cook did. And, and of course, the problem is the universities are, are on board with so much of this because they uh, get huge amounts of funding mm. uh, 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 through all of this. And I saw that change, by the way, in my career when um, governments um, said uh, or universities have start, uh, started to lose government funding. Yeah. And but they realized that they could take a percentage of every faculty member's research funds and argue that, hey, we give you uh, office and heat and light. So we're going to take a percentage of your funding. So the universities on average now take 35 to 40 percent of all of a faculty member's uh, research funds. That makes the whatever the faculty member is doing important to the university. And of course, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with the quality of their work. It has everything to do with the amount of funding. Then the university must want people researching global warming because they get funds for that, if it can confirm. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I mean, you look at the people at East Anglia. They were bringing in $20 million a year for the university. Yeah. Right? So that's And this is a kind of a state-sanctioned corruption because you yes. wouldn't get that, this in a free market, but there you have the corruption of the multinational corporations. Exactly. They but do the same role as the state do in the university. Multinational corporations are not an awful lot different than large governments. Mm. I mean, if, if you want proof of that, look at the, what the university training. It's, it's preparing students to work for, for government yeah. or for big business. Yep. No, I don't know of any university in, North, in Canada, I know, because we researched it, that's teaching students how to run a business or how to run a farm, for that matter. Mm. Right. You're all going to you're going to go to government or, or to big business. But anyway, um, b- back to Cook. So yep. Cook's 97 percent figure, that's where that came from. And even though it's been debunked, um, you don't see it used quite as much anymore. But as I said, um, the, one of the big well, you see, you see stuff like uh, this signing campaign. You, pro- you, you know what yes. I mean, right? Yep. And everybody refers to that. But then I saw another signing campaign against it. Yep. And I think it was just as many who signed that one who signed the first one. What was the fact? Okay, but that's an important point because one one of the ones you're referring to is the Oregon petition. Mm. And there's been others. There was the Heidelberg petition, uh, and I've forgotten the name of the other one. But um, they tried to get me to sign the Oregon petition, and it's now something like 35,000 people, including Nobel Prize winners. But I said no. And the reason I said no was because your consensus is no different or better than their consensus argument. Right. Right. 
So either you believe... Yeah, but it's still a defense. It's They're not the one who started oh, it. it. No, it, it, that's true. But, uh, you know, just because somebody jumps off a bridge, does that mean you have to? <laughs> <laughs> so you still believe in the rational way to solve this? Well, you have to. Mm. If Once you drift away from logic, you're done. You're absolutely done. Once you get into the realm of, of the uh, uh, unprovable authority debate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is this is the difficulty. And, and of course, you see one of the things and we can come back to this later on. We've already referred to it. But um, in, in that change that occurred from global warming to climate change was triggered by empirical evidence. Hmm. Not not by anything else, but just that the facts no longer fit the theory, and and so uh, that that was what was going on. But anyway, um, the idea of uniformitarianism then is still endemic throughout Western science and the Western people's view of the world. One of the ways you see this, Al, is that. Um, uh, most people still believe that the orbit of the Earth around the sun is a fixed elliptical orbit and that the tilt of the Earth is 23 and a half degrees. Yeah, so what we learn in school, right? And most, yeah. a lot of schools, they're still teaching that. Yep. But, but we've known for 150 years that the orbit of the Earth around the sun is not, it's, it's almost circular as it is right now, but at 22,000 years ago, it was much more elliptical. Mm. Right, mm. and, a, and a Scottish shopkeeper by the name of Kroll was studying how that change in orbit would cause climate change. That's been in the literature for 150 years. But you see, if you if you start saying, well, you know, oh no, the the orbit of the Earth, those things change. That contradicts uniformitarianism. Yeah, and, and another thing that contradicts it is that when you have uh, honest scientists in fields where interpretation is minimized, yeah. in fields where hard facts are unavoidable, yeah. that's the big problem because then you have a collision between objective uh, truth and this ideological concocted truth that they're adhering to. And I see that in cases of solar scientists. There's uh, one uh, famous Norwegian called Paul Brekke. You probably heard about yeah, him. Yeah. And then there's also a, a very famous Danish, yeah. Danish one. I forgot his name. But both of them have been very vocal. And up here, the state is totally in bad with the global warming myth. So it, it costs you as a scientists. And Tom told me this too, that uh, in all universities, it's, it's what you said. It's where the grants, where the funds goes is always yeah. if it supports the global warming myth. So ideology is already taken over. Yeah. But these solar scientists, yeah. they have to be honest about what they find because that's their field. Yeah. And I mean, just the fact that the poles have changed on the, yep. the magnetic poles, we don't hear yep. anything about it, n nor no. do we hear about potential consequences. Or then I don't even know if they're even researching it, and it's crazy. We're like yep. uh, ostriches; we're having our head yep. in the sand. Well, you know, when I appeared before the Canadian Parliamentary Committee on the ozone issue, uh, I pointed out to them that this was an unproved theory. And I said, as a scientist, I can I can stand up and, and speculate using scientific facts on, on hundreds of issues that threaten the uh, life on Earth. Mm -hmm. and, and what are you going to do about them? And of course, one one of the politicians said, you know, Galileo would be ashamed of you. And I said, you know, just to be mentioned in the same sentence as Galileo is the greatest compliment you can pay me. <laughs> but I just want to go to your point about about evidence. Yeah. And, and ironically, it was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle through his character of Sherlock Holmes. And this is what he wrote 
It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Mm -hmm. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Mm -hmm. That's what has happened with academia today. Exactly. Exactly. That's what's happened. So as I say, the whole idea of uniformitarianism is what um, uh, allows them to make the claim that change is ra more rapid than ever before and therefore add that to the idea that uh, therefore it must be unnatural and therefore it's something humans are doing. And we've already discussed that. Uh, yeah, no, uh, but you, it's a good point of view to go back to that because what most yep. people don't know is that the other dominating school back then is what was called the catastrophists. And their problem yep. was that uh, the religious scriptures all over the world agreed with them. And then the universe materials they couldn't distinguish it was like we have to get rid of the whole notion of catastrophe yeah. because otherwise we're supporting religion yeah and with that the baby went out of the bathwater because yeah. they didn't consider that the very fact that all religions and myths have this is because they're an echo of something that did happen yeah. but they were just no. so concerned about getting rid of this hegemony of you know they wanted exploration not dogmas so i can kind of see why yeah. they went there but it went very wrong one of the people that struggled with this was stephen jay gould and and of course he uh did what Galileo did. He wrote books for the general public consumption, thinking that if he could jump past the um, powers that be and the authorities to the general public, that they would then, uh, you know, realize what, what was actually going on. Uh, I mentioned Galileo because Galileo published in Italian, not uh, Latin, as was the, the language of science at the time. Uh -huh. I think that it, it did help Galileo to the extent that they didn't execute him. They just put him under house arrest but because he had a lot of public support. But um, right. th th that idea with Stephen Jay Gould, he, he tried to come up with a compromise, what he called punctuated equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea that, that, yeah, there's gradual change, but then every once in a while, there's a sudden change that, that creates a whole new equilibrium. Right. And so it was a cross between uniformitarianism and catastrophism. Right. And I think I think that but when you read what Stephen Jay Gould wrote, reading between the lines, you realize that he knew that um, the both uniformitarianism and catastrophism were wrong. But he didn't dare say that because it challenged Darwin and he was uh, he would lose his tenure at, at Harvard because of it. Hmm. So when when did he uh, do this? Well, uh, Gould was back in the in the eighties. Oh, that recently. Okay. Yes, mm. and and he, by the way, is the one that picked up on. There's a geological deposit called the Burgess Shales here in Canada, and um, it it was found in the 1930s, and uh, uh, people went back looking at it starting in the 60s and 70s. What's unique about it is that um, it were preserved. Uh, in the fossil record, hundreds and thousands of creatures that have no cellular structure. So for anything that doesn't have bones or teeth to survive in the fossil record is virtually impossible. Hmm. But in this particular instance, what happened was there was a massive downslope movement of sediment in a deep ocean, and it buried all of these soft-bodied creatures. Mm. And of course, uh, what um, Gould wrote about about it in, in in a book, and I've forgotten the name of the book offhand. That's okay. Uh, 
But anyway, and, and of course, what he was suggesting was, you know, this showed that the whole Darwin idea that you start with a single species and that evolves into all different species. What he argued was, no, it, it goes the other way. You start with thousands of different species, which trigger are triggered by the appearance of oxygen in the atmosphere. And then gradually over time, different species become extinct. That extinction is the normal, not the abnormal. So that's part of the natural uh, evolution. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Now, the other story I want to tell you, the story implies, well, yeah, but um, in the 1990s, there was a big debate going on in the climate community, um, and it was a battle between uh, is the climate uh, catastrophic or chaotic was Mm. the word they were using, Mm. the chaos theory, or is it cyclical? And a conference Mm. was held and it split with the Soviets as they were then and the Chinese saying, no, it's cyclical. It's just that there are so many cycles all interacting with each other uh, that the net effect appears to be uh, 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 chaotic. And it just cares to us because we are, we don't, I mean, we are part of this. We're trying to understand the entire ecosystem. That's like an ant understanding a forest maybe. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, but what happened was in in at that conference, the Western world, America and, and Europe and so on, were saying, "Oh no, it's chaos. It's chaotic." It, mm. it, and I teased them at the time. I said, "You guys better hope it's right because it'll help explain why your forecasts are so wrong." <laughs> and, and, and 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 but but here's what was interesting about that conference: it got reported in the media as a a political dispute between the East and the West of the Cold War. Right. But in fact, it was a very, very important division within the, with the climate science community. But, and Russia and China are still holding their ground, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. They're not corrupted by this uh, wave of no, uh, no. ideology. And, okay. Right. And I'm certainly, having worked with both of them, for example, uh, uh I worked with Boris Senkov, who was a historical climatologist, and he was using the Russian chronicles to reconstruct um, the uh, weather and climate of of Russia for the last thousand years, because the emperors, right for the Romanovs, right from the start, kept uh, annual weather uh, and crop reports. Excellent. Right. The reason they did it was because they knew if the harvest failed, there would be social unrest and they had to get the troops ready to put right. in place to, to suppress it. This, the same was true in China. The emperors did the same thing. And um, so it's uh, this. there was a very practical reason for them keeping those records. But, of course, today they're... So very- they have records. They know. Plus, we have ways to find out what has happened in the past, too, right? We can we see it in stone, in tree, in yes. ice and snow. Yeah, let me just put a word to that. That's called proxy data. Okay, proxy data. Okay, mm. actual actual measurement is called secular or instrumental data. Mm. And we, we've only got about 120 years of actual instrumental measurements and you know what tom told me he said that a part of how they can manipulate the data is that they have uh, ground sensors and they have atmosphere sensors and there's one of them that kind of debunks the data debunks global warming so they stopped measuring them i forgot if they were the one in the air or the one on the ground but one of them they don't like the data so now they're they're not reporting they're uh, censoring those kind of data to 
get right. there. And, and, and they've adjusted every single climate record for the whole world. And what they've done is they've made the earlier temperatures colder than they, than they were actually recorded as, right. which, of course, then changes the slope showing, oh, it's, it's warmed more than it actually did. Mm. We actually brought a lawsuit against the New Zealand government for doing exactly that. Wow. But in but in fact, all governments have done it. All and and they say, oh well, the the historic. When you say government, you mean the government-sanctioned scientists who are responsible for this. Exactly yeah, through the okay. World Meteorological Organization. So the politicians doesn't necessarily have to know this. They may be naively on board. Some well, of them. At okay, least. but let's get to that a bit later because. Okay. More strong. Yeah, that goes to motivation. Yeah, you know yes. what? Let, let's finish the consensus thing because yeah. um, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, now you're telling us that even most of the world are not on board. So in the Western world, if half are skeptical to global warming, that's just in the Western world. That means at the, in the world total, the global warming uh, propagators may be very, very small. Yes. Despite that they have infiltrated and that if you're going to be a prospective scientist today, you have to accept it. It's like catechism. You can't force the old tenured professor who's always retired to do that. But the youngsters, they can be selected out in the process of ascending. but. Okay, two things about that. One is, this is the extent to which this whole thing has changed environmentalism, I mean, and climate change, has changed the academic pattern. In the old days, the old professors hailed the prevailing wisdoms, and the new young professors came in and challenged it. Now, the new professors come in indoctrinated in the school system and they it's the old professors that are saying hold on a minute i mean look at the age of the skeptics like tom and myself and fred singer and i mean we're all in our 80s and 90s and we're the ones that are saying hey you people are coming in here indoctrinated take a look at what you're saying Mm. And and so they flip that, uh, that upside down completely in, in what they've done. But how many, despite this, uh, how many do you think there are in terms of percentages? Uh, is it even possible to know? No. First of all, um, with the general public, we do have surveys about the public concern about global warming and climate change. Yeah, but that's a result of propaganda. You can't go by that. Well, yes, but, but this it's important because... Over the last six or seven years, the the concern amongst the public has dropped and dropped and dropped. And the mo- one one of the most recent ones, for example, the UN did a survey of 10 million people, uh, I believe, in 18 different countries, and uh, they listed here's 16 global concerns. Climate change was dead last. Hmm. In the Pew Center polls, which are, is a left-wing uh, center in the United States, they have li- they list uh, social concerns of the American public. They list 34 of them. Global warming and climate change is 32nd. Yeah. People are more concerned about getting a place to live, getting yes. food in their belly. That's natural. Right. Okay. No, but what it shows is that the public are simply not buying into it anymore. Despite the propaganda. Yes, they're keeping their mouth shut. And why are they keeping their mouth shut? Because they're they're following what Mark Twain said. Look, if somebody thinks you're stupid, um, you know, because you're sitting there with your mouth shut, don't open your mouth and prove that it's true. 
<laughs> okay. And so what yeah. the public are doing is saying, look, we don't know enough to say, so we're just keeping our mouth shut. Right. They're on the sideline waiting for the evidence to show, but they, but they have an underlying suspicion because most of them don't trust government. That may be true in America, but uh, I'm living in probably oh. the most uh, naive country in the world. So, <laughs> so that's not. Yeah. Uh, we can't always go by common sense yeah. and gut oh, feeling. But, yeah. but uh, among the professionals, then, what do you think is the percentage? I I think it's probably about three percent. Jesus, three yes. percent? That's nothing. No, and that's that's the second point I want to make. You see, because. They use this figure of 97% consensus. Yeah. Yeah. But I, uh, from all of my talking to different people, 97% have never even looked at what the uh, IPCC report say. Can I mean 97% within certain disciplines then or, um, or certain countries? No, it because, because as I said – they just accept what that other scientists at the IPCC wouldn't do corrupt things. And therefore, if they tell me that CO2 is causing global warming, I accept it. But they haven't actually checked it out. Mm. And let me let me read. I, I put this quote on the back of both my books because it's a very, very important thing. And this is from a German meteorologist and physicist by the name of Klaus Eckhart Pouls, P-U-L-S. Mm-hmm. And this is what he wrote. Ten years ago, I simply parroted what the IPCC told us. One day, I started checking the facts and data. First, I started with a sense of doubt. But then I became outraged when I discovered that much of what the IPCC, and for your listeners, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, what I, I discovered that much of what the IPCC and the media were telling us was sheer nonsense, and was not even supported by any scientific facts and measurements. To this day, I still feel shame that as a scientist, I made presentations of their science without first checking it. Scientifically, it is sheer absurdity to think we can get a nice climate by turning a CO2 adjustment knob. That's that's from a, a specialist. And, of course, uh, the uh, late professor physicist um, Hal Lewis made a similar statement because one one of the things that happened was that um, the uh, Royal Society was used by the people in England to um, get these science societies around the world to um, uh, to to uh, promote the global warming issue. Mm. And it was a deliberate thing. The Russian one, under the direction of Yuri Israel, refused to go along. Yuri Israel said no, because he was on the IPCC. He knew what was wrong with what they were saying. Now, um, uh, Hal, Hal Lewis, um, he said, um, and he, he resigned from the American uh, Physics Society because they wanted their members to promote the global warming thing. And he wrote to them in, in his, his letter of resignation saying, it is the greatest and most successful pseudoscientific fraud I have seen in my long life as a physicist. Hmm. Those are, you know, I mean, incredible statements from scientists. And yet that is not getting reported to the general public. No, but they would say, you know, oh, yeah, there's always some lonely swans. These are not representative of the fields. That's 
That's what they say. Of course they do, because what you do is you marginalize people. You say, oh, no, that's a small group. So but if it's not correct, please correct the record then. Well, in what, in what sense? How should I correct the record? Well, for example, okay, so are there any studies in... In, you said there were 3% who believe this. Uh, this is based on, on your observation or studies? Yeah, my observation. Studies? Okay. No, my observation. And, and, but also, of course, when you start to challenge people and, and say, well, okay, you, you show me your, your evidence of, of these people and, and, and have they read the IPCC report, mm. uh, virtually none of them have. And that's the difficulty. In fact, in fact, there are many scientists who are claiming to be climate scientists who haven't read what the IPCC report says. Mm. And just for the common man, why is it so important that they know that report? Well, because once you read it, you find out what uh, what uh, the data says. Eckhart, yes. Mm. And what you also find out, and we'll get to this in, in a minute, is is that uh, they they write the science report. And they very cleverly list in it all of what's wrong uh, with with the uh, with the science, but they then put that aside and don't publish it till after they publish what's called the summary for policymakers. Because people just read the summaries. Yes. Well, mm. no, they, they deliberately create a summary that um, alters. Yeah, because most scientists only read a summary, so they don't read the real data. And the media read the summary. Media. Mm. And, and they this is done deliberately. Mm. But still, they're not faking the data itself, then. They're just burying it and misrepresenting it. Exactly. Okay. And that's, of course, what um, Klaus Eckert Pulse discovered when he read it. That's why I'm saying I know that so few have read it because if they did, they'd immediately see. Because uh, it's so obvious that any scientist uh, yeah. with worth the name, just taking a look at it, will understand, yeah. Jesus, this is a lie. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's worth taking that claim seriously because I've heard that from every scientist I've spoken with. Yep. Who's looked into it? Yep. Yep. The minute you start looking, you can't believe what you're seeing. But they rely on people not doing it, media not doing it, and people in general. But not only rely on it, but set up a system where they almost guaranteed they weren't mm. going to do it because, no, here's the document that you need to read, the summary for policymakers. But the summary for policymakers is written by a separate group of politicians and bureaucrats and a few selected scientists to direct them mm. who are controlled uh, that are not involved with the original yeah yeah who writes what they want to see yeah. so what does the data suggest and do you think it could be the sun uh i think it's almost 100% the sun nice i mean th think about it this way every day the temperature rises and falls what causes that the, the co2 doesn't change daily right mm. every week the temperature changes. Why? Because the amount of sunlight changes. Every month, every year, you've got the seasons. Why are the seasons? Because the sun changes. Nothing to do with CO2. Not only that, just recently, a week or two ago, it was in all the local papers that there's a uh, crisis here now because there's too little CO2. Yeah. And that just doesn't rhyme with their whole, uh, <laughs> you know, CO2 myth. So... That's interesting. Well, but it, it does. It does. If you consider what you've already mentioned earlier, the importance of CO2 as a nutrient for plants. Mm. Yeah, that's so logical. So I, I just yeah. I mean, we learn that in school. Plants eat CO2 and they uh, give us back oxygen. Yes. So 
wouldn't that mean that growth should increase if there's increased CO2? And by the way, here in Norway, I, I think it has increased. Uh, when I was young, it wasn't that thick, agri- um, wild as it is now. It's it's huge, many, many bushes and it's grow. But that they say it's because we don't have so many. We have too much factory farm before the animals were keeping growth at bay, right? No, no. No, there's there's several reasons for it. One is that they have reduced the amount of forested area. They've also reduced the amount of uh, agricultural area in every continent in the world. For example, Canada is farming less land now than it did in 1930. Mm -hmm. So there has been that. But there has also been what's called a CO2 seeding effect. That is the increase in CO2. For example, the studies show that uh, two bushels per acre increase in yield on the Canadian prairies is due to the increased CO2 over the last 60 years. So there's no question. So CO2 has an effect on our on our nature. Oh, totally. Mm. Totally. But here's the problem. And by the way, if your listeners want to go to the absolute best site in the world to look at this, it's called CO2 science. That's all one word. CO2, capital S, for science, CO2 science. It's run by a father, Sherwood Idso, IDSO, and his son, Craig, Craig Idso. And they have been studying CO2 and its impact on an effect on plants for, oh, well, Sherwood certainly for 60 years. And um, uh, they have shown, and in fact, they grow individual plants and increase the, they put them in a conclo- an enclosed area and double triple and quadruple the amount of co2 and, and get increases of yields of four times uh, but they also of course interestingly get a reduction in the amount of water that the plant uses but besides their actual uh, lab experiments and and field experiments um in Denmark, for example, they have been pumping CO2 into their greenhouses for 100 years now. Mm. And now in, in most commercial greenhouses around the world, they are pumping up to 1,200 parts per million of CO2 into the greenhouse. We need more CO2 then. Yes. Oh, yeah. In fact, I have made the argument in many places that at 400 parts per million, the plants are malnourished. Mm. And that... Um, and what's interesting about all of this, by the way, uh, uh, is when you look at the geologic record of CO2 in the atmosphere, over the last 260 million years, the average level of CO2 was about 1,200 parts per million. Mm-hmm. And that 260 million years is approximately the same length of time that plants have evolved on the planet. So it appears that plants have evolved to an optimum level of CO2 of 1,200 parts per million. That's why in the Sherwood uh, experiments and in the greenhouses, the plants seem to function best at about that level. Mm. So that would be perfect for the world if that was the... What are the levels today then? Well, today they're, the IPCC are claiming they're at 400 parts per million. But you see, people like Al Gore and others going around saying, oh, it's too high. It's the highest ever. No, it's not. Um, in fact, um, uh, it's been as high as 9,000 parts per million in mm. geologic time. And and um, Al Gore wants to lower it. The, the governments are lowering it. But um, as you lower it, the plants start to die. And at 150 parts per million, most of the vegetation is dead at that point. So you're starving the plants by... Yes, 
Yeah. And of course, I, I laugh because uh, and I tease them about it. A lot of people don't understand what I'm saying, but I say, oh, oh, this is their goal is to reduce the amount of oxygen, which would reduce the number of people on the world, which is what they want to do. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. There are claims of, uh, you know, one uh, population control, one world government. Oh. But most people yeah. write that off as crazy conspiracy. But, but but let me get to that point because you mentioned it twice now and I've, I've responded to it. Conspiracies do occur. Mm. A conspiracy can be – only has to have two people involved in it. Yeah. And one of the things that people think is, oh, a conspiracy requires a whole bunch of people agreeing to it. No, that's a myth. Yeah. That's right. And Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, said uh, change has always been uh, brought about by a small group of people. Yeah. Okay. Compartmentalization is the yes. name of the game. It's the name of the game. Plus control. Right. Right. Now, when you mentioned about, uh, oh, you know, that you marginalize uh, uh, these people that question it, mm. the 3%, you can easily marginalize them. Yes, you do it by personal attacks on them. You can do that by t attacking the individual uh, but you can also do it now in the modern era by what in a way is a contradiction in terms, and that is collective ad hominem. Mm. Now, ad hominem, of course, means to the person attacking the person. A collective ad hominem would be uh, like a conspiracy theory or a global warming skeptic. Oh, you're one of those. Or everybody is in the pocket of the oil industry. Or exactly. Or everybody are religious nuts. Exactly. They use those tactics all the time. Smears. Smears. Okay. But so, look, so, so, so that people know that if you yeah. take this attitude, if you agree with this, you will become one of the uh, in the stigmatized group. Exactly. And that keeps many from doing it. Some just for, you know, rumors, some for yep. career, some for, yep. you know, group think. Yep. There's so many reasons. Yep. And I'll give you one of the, the bizarre reasons. Mm -hmm. um, most scientists, as you know, well, science should be apolitical and amoral. It shouldn't involve morality or politics. You just do the science and let the society deal with it. True. Um, and, and, and Einstein spoke to that in his letter about nuclear power. But um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the public, um, they, don't, they don't want to deal with that. And, and, and so uh, – and, and, and the scientists – also, like I had a lot of scientists say to me, look, we agree with you, but we're not going to say that publicly. And I said, why not? They said, because we're socialists. And the minute you say that you don't agree with the global warming, you're branded as a right wing conservative. Yeah. I was going to I have that in my notes to talk about the politicization yeah. too, yeah. left, right, because if yeah. people are in the left and they think you have to believe this to be on the left, then they get a lot of freebies. Yep. Uh, support that they wouldn't uh, otherwise get. So that's what you exactly. get for uh, ideologizing it. Uh, yeah, it yeah. becomes like identity politics incentive. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you know what? Uh, let's take a short break. Yes. And when we come back, we'll explore the what we could call the CO2 conspiracy even deeper. Okay? Sure. Whatever you want. Okay. okay. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 